Boy, episode five was a, a ways away. So it's been nearly two weeks since the last one came out, and that's probably a little over two weeks since I was recording them because I recorded all four of the first ones in the same day. Fun times. So here we are again. This is my dumpster wreck show. My life is a dumpster fire. A lot happened in those two weeks, which is why I didn't do any of these. Um, it just got really overwhelming. This one's going to be a little bit longer than previous ones because instead of just kind of riffing about whatever the subject was going to be, I'm actually going to read a an, an article that I created kind of explaining just one of the many things that have happened in the last two weeks that on its own really kind of explains a little bit about why I haven't done much for two weeks. So um, the I'll, I'll put a link in whatever description wherever it's at for the article. It's published on Medium in the real publication. The publication's name is Real. That is the name of it. Um, and links will be in the description. The title is I Killed My Cat because I believe it was the right thing to do. So let's go. Uh, the actual article itself will have all the nifty pictures of my boy if you wanted to see those and uh, we'll see how emotional this gets. It's probably going to be a, a bit of a ride. Trigger warning, this is about losing a loved one. Most people have a moral code, a sense of what they believe, for whatever reason, is right or wrong. Much of that is borrowed from their religion or spirituality, codes of honor vetted in hundreds or thousands of years of ritual, faith, and stories. Stories perhaps much like this one. Right or wrong, you be the judge. First off, owning a pet is hard. People tend to think about the daily work involved when assessing the difficulty of pet ownership, which is fair. It's important to consider the amount of effort in feeding, walks, playtime, litter scooping, or whatever else your pet will need on a daily basis. So many pets get discarded simply because they were too much work. That's fucking stupid in my opinion. I've learned that during the pandemic, people adopted pets at ridiculous rates only to mass abandon them a short while later. I was blissfully ignorant of that and now wonder about the strays I remember seeing from afar during those early pandemic days. But I digress. What we rarely discuss is how hard it is to be a guardian over a creature that will inevitably invite into our hearts long enough to grieve painfully when they die. That side of ownership? or should I say stewardship, is infinitely harder. Nearly 20 years ago, I was gaining weight fast, my doctor's advice being to eat four meals a day. Underweight, she said. For the baby's sake, I needed more calories. Nesting was its own full-time job. We needed to upgrade from a studio apartment to a house and get it ready with all the furniture and toddler safety gadgets available. A few months in, I was itchy for a test run of responsibility at about the same time a co-worker's cat had available kittens. 
My childhood cat had stayed with my mom, and a home just didn't feel complete without a little furball running around. Three days after I brought this all-black fluff monster home, he changed from the sweetest puff of love and cuddles into a terror of biting teeth and hisses. He sank his fangs into people left and right, hissing for what seemed like no reason, and generally was a turd. What had I gotten myself into, I thought. But when the baby came, he enlisted himself as their ward, their protector, their interspecies sibling. He was family, for better or worse. We've been through a lot together. He came with me when I left my child's father. He watched as I was manipulated away from my abuser by my abuser. He approved of mortal after our three-person family got a two-bedroom apartment to start all over again. He begrudgingly shared space with two other cats as we collected more fur babies and took advantage of the 2008 crash to get a house for our growing family. If you're wondering, I never found his name. That's why I'm not mentioning it here. We called him Kitty as a placeholder until his name was revealed. And it never really was. Perhaps ninja during some times, as he used to creep into my lap so slowly and stealthily I didn't realize he was even there until he was fast asleep. Devil or Satan at others. In his later years, the name Kitty became him, as it feels unarguably clear to me that he is a fledgling human, and was training with us in this life to prepare for his evolution upward. To us, he was an eternal autistic child. He couldn't grow further in this form, but he had full right to enjoy whatever pleasures he could before it was time. Out of four cats, this is the only one I've legitimately killed. As grief overtook my family from my grandmother's passing in 2008, my mom grew increasingly anxious about my childhood cat mittens. Kidney failure had stricken him, and he had quickly declined into the dog days of old age. I was there when he breathed his last, but it was my, my mother's decision. I was merely along for the ride. Dottie was hit by a car. I was there when she breathed her last too, but in a different way. I shoveled her off the salt-covered street and onto a flattened box to bring inside, and cowardly left her in the basement while I bawled my eyes out a floor above. Traumatized, I called my mom to help me prepare the body for my child and mortal to see in a better state, as they were out with friends at the time. Mew, sigh. Mew was tragic. In hindsight, it's clear he'd been going through the late stages of heart failure in the days before his annual checkup. He suffered greatly, as we had no idea what was going on. The vet didn't know either. We found out two hours after he died, the x-ray specialist confirmed he had a rare genetic heart defect causing the walls of his heart to grow inward until there was no space left for blood. He died of a blood clot reaching his heart, but would have likely died within days even without that. Each one of those are deeply impactful stories to unpack. This one, however, is about Kitty. Kitty also had kidney failure. When Mew died, Kitty was given the diagnosis. He stopped eating and lost so much weight over a matter of days, we had to put him on appetite stimulants. Mew had been our family's emotional support through the pandemic. We weren't ready to lose Kitty, too. It was a high red alert for two years, waiting for the signs of decline. 
Meanwhile, Kitty didn't respond well to the medications. He'd get jittery and anxious, unable to sleep for an entire day until he crashed for another day. He gained weight, looked moderately healthy, but was obviously miserable. After a year and a half of forcing the meds on him and watching him get more and more restless, more and more abusive to others, we had the hard discussion about taking him off the meds. Our whole family knew there was a high likelihood that it meant he was going to die. But he didn't. He persisted. He learned to eat again, though not as much, and stayed that way for a few months longer. And then the power outage hit. Earlier this month, 100,000 people went without power from a severe thunderstorm ripping through our city. We were without power for four days and without air conditioning for a good chunk of that. I don't know if the heat accelerated things or if it was just coincidence that his condition changed. Whatever the case, he started peeing a lot and yowling in waves. This had happened a few times before, the likely passing of kidney stones. Once a month, maybe, if that. Those were brief. This was not. We couldn't take him to the vet, by the way. He had a history of seizures nearly every time, and honestly, we weren't sure he could survive another one. Getting into a carrier is, was the last resort option for when it was his time to go. He had enough to worry about without adding that kind of fear to whatever life he had left. You may say there are ways around that. Home visits, for starters. And you're right, there are treatments available that could have extended his life and made him and us more comfortable along the way. However, we're not in that income bracket. We live paycheck to paycheck, and now that Mortal's overtime ran out, we're no longer at least even breaking even. While there were points in our lives we could have afforded more, we simply couldn't now. As his yowling continued, we stayed the course. One stone passed, and then he was normal for a day. Then two. I don't know how many happened since then as they started blending together as one big kidney stone roller coaster. One night, it got bad. I wrote most of this on the last night, just before his last visit to the vet. Between moments of responsibility and cuddles, I tapped out much of these words to help me confront and express what I was going through at the time. The night prior, he'd been howling off and on for a day. We thought he was upset that we couldn't give him the food he wanted because we couldn't get it anymore. And then the low, hollow yowls came out. The ones I came to understand as a warning before a particularly large vomit would occur without the yuck. Instead, the owls and howls just persisted endlessly. Something was wrong. Very wrong. He was restless. I didn't notice until he'd been screaming over a day already that he hadn't slept at all. Not once. In fact, he refused lap time for more than a few minutes and was constantly laying down and jumping back up again all over the house. Keep in mind, I wasn't trailing him everywhere. He was bouncing from room to room. When I asked, no one else had seen him sleep either. He'd been too stressed out to lay down for longer than a few minutes. He also started venturing into the kitchen, a place he'd historically been terrified of. 
howling out the back window. When the doors didn't open, he began howling out the front window. My partner, who prefers that I refer to him as Ghost, started having flashbacks of Mew seeking the exits mere hours before he died. After roughly 36 hours, Katie finally passed that stone. He was exhausted, literally passing out the moment he felt comfortable enough to lay next to me. But by that point, I'd already made the decision to kill him. The decision to euthanize is a moral slash spiritual decision. Whether you follow a religion, cult, or science, when we ask ourselves when it's time, we're looking to a code inside us to judge right from wrong and guide us to a decision we can live with. Whether we're comfortable with God's commandments or a logical approach to the quality of life, it's a sacred question and a subjective answer. That day, I realized how incredibly complex and nuanced my beliefs are by asking myself that very question. I won't go into the specifics here because that's far too lengthy to be fair to Kitty. But I believe in reincarnation. I also believe the meaning of life is infinite experiences playing themselves out. The infinite being that is everything in our universe, and possibly beyond, doesn't care about rights and wrongs the way, say, the Christian God does. My highest good is always increasing the number of experiences, even if they're painful. Not as a malicious decree, but because the universe is a truly neutral, balanced perspective in which every side we can imagine is equal. Except for limiting experiences. Anything that limits the universe's ultimate experience through each and every one of us is a true sin, despite the lack of apparent sway for good or bad ones. My belief, not that anyone needs to feel the same. My mind kept going through the infinite perspectives. Do I really have the right to end his life, even if to take away that pain? What karma will be attached to this decision on my soul? On his? Was it the right way? By my own unique belief structure, I denied the rest of his experiences because they will be too painful for him. Will the universe forgive me for that? Knowing that the universe treats all experiences equal, good and bad, was I going against my version of God in making this decision? I don't know if it was right or wrong. I still don't, over a week later. But I believe I did the right thing. And I'll carry that with me the rest of my life. It's over a week later now, and I've come back to finish the story to send it off. Past this point, I was unable to continue writing, and couldn't write much of anything for days after. It was just too painful. Some experiences need to be fully felt, rather than expressed. Be warned, it gets even harder from here. We all said our goodbyes. Our family took the rest of the day to say goodbye. 
We gave him a heaping plate of bacon, ripped up into bits, which he chomped down on more excitedly than I'd seen in months. Kept looking up at me as if to ask, is this really okay for me to eat? We each sat with him individually and gave him chin scritches, not a typo, that's what we call it, and hugs. He loved hugs. Being an autistic cat, he purred loudly and immediately from the pressure. Not too much pressure, of course, but light hugs weren't enough to get that motor going. I'll really miss squeezing him into a hearty purr, especially loud when it was my arms around him. After a time, we gave him a hefty dose of the leftover gabapentin prescribed to Mew years ago. That part was rough. You'd think being a sedative, it would lull him into compliance, but he wasn't that kind of cat. He felt it come on, and his anxiety ramped up. Adrenaline fought against the drugs as he wandered the house, confused about what was happening. It was hard to watch. Hard to stay the course. He didn't understand. He didn't know. He thought he had beaten the shadow of death. But we knew it wasn't a battle he could win. There were two choices. End his story there with as much love as we could muster to follow him to whatever happens next. Or watch as the pain got worse and worse. That last stone probably ripped him internally, and he had already begun wailing again as if another were on the way. No. I believe we did the right thing. His pain ended, while ours amplified. Once he became sedated enough, I wrapped him in a cat burrito and held him. Through the walk to the car, and on the 25-minute ride to the vet, I held him tight. He let out a few drugged-up mules trying to protest. I squeezed him tight, hoping to whatever deity was listening that our mercy and love would grant him some privilege in the next life we simply couldn't provide in this one. He deserved better. My love for him, and perhaps grief and guilt about the entire situation, drove me to stroke his cheek almost the entire way, whispering to him how much we all loved him, how silky his fur had always been, and all the ways we were going to miss him. I tried my best to make it known that he was loved, so, so loved. But I'll never know if he understood. Kitty didn't understand so much that the phrase, Kitty doesn't get it, was a standard statement in our home. We got into the vet and things went clinically. In hindsight, I think the front desk was used to people just coming in to euthanize their animals callously and without remorse. I had to ask to be allowed to take him to the room they'd prepared. 
We called in advance, and they were near closing with no one else there but us. The acoustics in the reception were jarring for Kitty, and if we had to wait a while, it was better if we could do it in a quieter room. Everything got worked out without me. My job was holding the boy, my fragile fur burrito that was confused, scared, exhausted, and in so much pain. He'd had a nap earlier, but it wasn't much. I held him, lightly squeezing him and crying off and on. More pets, mostly on his cheek as the rest of him was wrapped up for safety. The reality started to sink in with my child, who accompanied me in the room while mortal and ghosts took care of the business side. We were about to end his life. They offered us time to say goodbye, but we'd been doing that all day. It was time. The longer he was there, the more scared and confused he would be. And we all wanted him to take the love we'd been pouring into him all day to the beyond rather than the fear of those last moments. At one point, someone took him from me to insert the IV. And I felt so empty and anxious. I wanted to be by him the whole way, to hold him and wrap him up in my presence and love to the very end. They had to do what they had to do, I suppose. His separation anxiety gave him another wind of strength when he returned, and he tried to stand up on the cold metal counter to pace around again. I had to hold him down. I had to look into his eyes and tell him it was okay, scratch his cheek for comfort as I pushed as gently as I could to get him to lay down. He obeyed. In his last hours, he was such a good boy. Not that he was truly bad at any point, but he was never an easy cat. We had gotten used to him freaking out at pill time, screaming at all hours of day and night, and being adamant about not laying down or being at the vet at all. His compliance still sends an arrow through my heart. Did he understand? Or was he simply too tired? Or did he trust me so completely that he accepted my will? The nurse came in with the fatal syringe and as it began to work through him, I told him one last time, I don't know what happens. Whatever is next, I don't know. But wherever you go, please remember, you were so, so loved. So many tears. We all cried. The nurse cried. We watched as he faded away, still laying in such an uncomfortable position we eventually had to move him for our own sanity. What had I done? He was gone, 
There was no going back. The decision had been made. I had been repeating that the entire day. The decision was made. There was only forward, and the will of the universe was behind me on it. Or at least that's how it had felt up to that moment. After he was gone, and I took my hands away from his still warm fur, I was just a small woman in the sea of a vast universe of chaos raining down on me from all sides. Was it right? Was I wrong? Did I just kill my best friend? The only being that had seen me through the last 20 years of life? Did he know how much I loved him? Did I show him enough? Would he remember the love? Or would his soul carry the unfairness of it all? The thoughts were endless. Panic set in and worked overtime on my mind and heart. When I look at things objectively, I honestly didn't appreciate him enough while he was here. I know that. I hate that. But I know that it is true. But I'm only human too. I can't be perfect. I can't always give up my lap every moment of the day for my dying sick kitty, even though that's literally all he ever wanted near the end. I had, I had to do things for my sanity, my health, and also the rest of the family too. It wasn't possible to appreciate him enough. He deserved more than any of us were capable, and yet I think that's probably true of most people, and all animals. None of us truly get what we deserve. I hope I showed him enough. Enough to know that I loved him, that he wasn't just a burden, but also a valuable part of our family. Enough to know that he will be missed, is missed, terribly so by all of us. Whatever happens to him, his soul, the quantum consciousness of his atomic structure, whatever, I just hope that the part of him that continues existing carries that love that he evoked within all of us. He taught me to be a better person, and I think we taught him to be better too. I don't think anyone could have asked for better from a stewardship. Maybe in time it will feel more right, but I think I'll always carry this feeling that I killed him. There's no way to know how much longer he would have lasted, or how much pain he would have gone through. But I made the decision to end his suffering, and I will have to find a way to live with that. My family might have made the decision with me, or at least didn't degree, disagree. But inside my mind, my heart, my soul, I killed my cat. I truly am a monster. With all the love I possess, rest in peace, buddy. We don't tend to use the word kill when talking about this sort of thing. 
Instead, we put them down to sleep or simply euthanized them. Flowery words that in most cases I agree with dampening the harshness of the word's effects. But not here. Not now. That's not how I feel. I didn't feel like I put him to sleep. I killed him. He felt alive and wanted to fight. I know that. Even though he barely did the things he loved anymore. No sunbeam naps. No cat grill naps. Look it up. It's a thing. No looking out the window. And rarely even lap naps. He wasn't enjoying life. And yet he was still fighting. I have to believe he was fighting endlessly for me, for us, to remain our vigilant protector as long as he still breathed. Using those words to smooth the harshness feels like making it easier. The words hurt less, and so it's easier to swallow the decision and action they're describing. I don't think it should ever be easy. Many times I wanted the pain in my heart to stop, to let me feel okay again. And yet, as I slowly sat eating my sad bacon ramen, so named from using the same batch of bacon used for his last meal, I felt at peace within my grief. The feelings were still there, still wrapped around me and coursing through me like a tsunami of emotions. But it felt right. It was right for me to feel pain. To be so emotionally destroyed by his passing and conflicted by the morality of my part in the decision. Without that, I think it would be all too easy to become callous about it and lose perspective. That was a life. He was alive. The fact that it was so hard to kill him means the situation was clearly dire enough to warrant doing so. And so I will keep that feeling with me into the next stewardship, whenever that may be. I'll do my best to remember when it's time to let that one go and to feel it all. I hope it never gets easier. <laughs>